0: Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another Speak of the Devil Presents Third Side Perspectives. And I've got to tell you, I don't think I've been quite this concerned about politics since like the 2004 election between George W. Bush and John Kerry. You see, at that time, we had just been lied into a war that we're actually still fighting to today, by the way, by George W. Bush, which justified terrorism for the next century against the U.S., We gave up our individual freedoms with his Patriot Act because we were scared. Fear. Fear makes us do really, really crazy things. For example, fear gave Trump his first term in office and it very well may give him a second term. I mean, that is if you actually believe that this election and your votes are going to matter because the Trump administration is actively seeking ways to overturn a negative election where he loses on a number of different fronts. First, he tries to convince the public that the election is rigged before it even starts, check. Then voter ballots are fake, check. They reduce sorting machines and postal service, check. Then they close polling locations, check. They restrict who can actually vote, check. They make voting difficult by requiring more documentation, check. They plan to throw out the votes and use state representatives in battleground states that are on team Trump to decide the election. That was just released in the news. They contest it to the Supreme Court that Trump has stacked in his first term. He's stacking it right now. And even if all of that fails, he has stated over and over again, he will simply not accept the results and he will not leave office. Every Trump cult member who claims they love freedom and democracy is obviously not listening to what their dear leader is saying or watching what he's doing. He removes environmental protections. He reneges on nuclear deals, praises dictators, strips away your already limited healthcare protections. He lied about COVID-19 leading to over 200,000 American deaths. He uses the presidency to enrich himself, gives tax breaks to those who don't need it, while leaving everyone else, primarily his base, to fend for themselves. He's an admitted sexual predator. He demonizes American citizens and immigrants of different skin colors. His border policy locked up and killed children. He's created a more divided America than I've ever seen in my lifetime. There are continuous protests in the streets that he meets with violence. He believes in extrajudicial killings. He's destroyed our reputation in the world that was repaired by the last administration from George Bush's reign of terror. He's caused a recession with his failed economic policies and now is telling everyone that he doesn't care about the Constitution, democracy, or justice, and that he will try to become the first American dictator. And that's from his actual lips. And I've gotta say, I am fucking tired of winning. Are you? I'm not gonna spend any time here trying to convince any of the cult members of their insanity, how they are actively destroying the very thing that they claim to love and cutting off their noses despite their faces they are already radicalized. I will not spend any time arguing with those who see all things as equal and don't recognize the urgency of now. You see, radical ideals are only bad when they restrict progress. Radical policies are only negative when they hold a population down. But radicals don't see reality. They only see the propaganda carefully laid out before them. And truth, well, truth becomes fake news in their twisted minds so let's talk about this. Let's talk about radicalism and extremism. It seems to be more prevalent now than ever before, and as Satanists, we're no more protected from it than anyone. But we should at least be willing to examine our own thoughts and motivations. We may even discover that we've become radicalized in thought, if not in action. Our first guest, is currently a PhD candidate in religion. Her areas of research are Western esotericism, ritual, new religions, and religions of popular culture. She's received multiple scholarships and awards of excellence and is published in peer-reviewed academic journals and books. She's a frequent guest and friend of the show. Allow me to introduce Witch Simony Holt. How are you, my dear?
1: I'm all right. How are you?
0: Very good. Our next guest is a PhD in clinical psychology. Her clinical practice focuses primarily on autistic adolescents and adults, LGBTQ clients, clients with disabilities, and clinical issues like anxiety, depression, grief and bereavement, and life transitions. Her research focuses on health outcomes of people with disabilities, and she also assists with First Science IARP research team in studying fandoms and the use of fantasy and positive coping. It's my pleasure to introduce a friend of the show, which Dr. Troj. How are you, my dear?
2: Oh, doing well. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing very well as well. <laughs> That's a lot of wells. All right, everyone, we've got a hell of a conversation to cover here. We're talking about radicalization. So let's do a little bit of definitions, but we're also going to bring up the idea of extremism. Now, this was brought up because, um, Troj, you see a bit of a difference between the two, right?
2: Potentially, and... Uh... I don't really have anything academic or solid to substantiate it. It's more maybe my writerly sensibility of, uh, they seem like they have slightly different semantics and I have employed them in slightly different contexts. I think uh, radicalism, radical, Radicals can potentially be positive or negative, or it can be a temporary state. Uh, I think extremism has more of a negative tinge to it for me, Mm -hmm. and I tend to use that more as uh, being synonymous with terms like fundy or zealot or ideologue. Uh, But uh, a lot of this is very fuzzy, Uh, but I'm sure these terms have different connotations for people, so I was just grappling with that.
0: Well, there is a lot of, of crossover in the way that I perceive the two. But I do think, because you hit on something here very important, that there is intention. Like I, I mentioned it briefly in the opening monologue, there there's a difference between negative and positive radical ideas. And I think it goes a little bit beyond just interpretation, right? What side of an issue you're on. Ultimately, I think... We could all agree, and and, and Simony, I'm going to ask you if, if you concur with this or not, that radical ideas, if they are meant to keep down any individual group, then they should be seen as abjectly negative, whereas radical ideas that lift up disenfranchised or marginalized peoples is an abject positive. Like, Do you see it that way as well?
1: Well... No, and let me tell you why. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's radical for to make the claim mm-hmm. that Black Lives Matter. Right. Like yeah. that's not a radical idea to me. <clears throat> to me this is uh, if you come from a community, any community, uh, if, uh, the Black community, Indigenous community, or different people of color, the queer community. Uh, but especially right now, in terms of the Black experience. In the United States, but even internationally, there's a, a broad anti-Black sentiment, and you are hunted down, harassed, killed, murdered, and uh, your voting rights are taken away. There's redlining. Um, you're uh, continuously uh, subject to violence by the state and your neighbor, or your neighbor via, <laughs> you know, via the state in terms of Karens calling the police. And to me, that's not radical at all, and it shouldn't be. And the fact that we even frame the notion that you would protest your own community being, you know, subject to genocidal practices all across the board is part then of a of a of a propaganda that we are preconditioned to think of. uh, We are preconditioned to think about, you know, a store burning versus. Black bodies being subject to violence and death and torture. Like, why aren't we outraged about that than we are about, you know, I like, you know, I like burn down the fucking mall too. If my son, (laughs) you know, was gunned down by the police and, and, you know, I don't have children and I don't relate to the black experience and I don't mean to try to co-opt that. But when certain things are framed as radical, I want to highlight that it is not radical to want to be able to walk freely in the world without interference. Mm-hmm. It is not radical <laughs> to want to not want to die at the hand of the state, either, you know, in hospitals or via police or <laughs> in, in any other, uh, manner like these, the fact that we even cons- consider them as radical or even frame them as radical, and I know we do, and that's part of why we have this conversation, is, is, is a very successful propaganda that even leftists and liberals think that they don't have. It's a bias that they think that they don't have, that they, you know, we sort of automatically think like, oh, this black man was gunned down, you know, what was his police record? And it doesn't occur to us to be outraged that the police, you know, act as vigilantes, because I guarantee you, if if every um you know white suburban kid you know that had that that smoked pot or had an altercation with police and just was let go because that happens regularly (laughs) um or you know engaged in any kind of behavior um that you know then then public discourse started talking about how it was justified you know white suburbia would be outraged it would just be how dare you even uh not Uh, consider that uh, you know a a person's life you know should be subject to you know vigilance and justice at the hands of police um you know there's due process and we would be fighting for that but we never we don't even consider it where our brains are so conditioned to the way media portrays black bodies the way we think about black community the way we think about crime the way we think about violence because the rhetoric is there for us we're primed for it that even if you don't think of course police shouldn't do that but it doesn't we have to train ourselves to be more critical of the rhetoric that we've absorbed our whole lifetime yeah. that posits that black lives don't matter. And like, I think that's on, I think that's on us, you know, like on as on white people, as on white, relatively middle-class. And even though technically I'm low income, you know, at this point educated, like I, everyone I know is more or less of a higher income bracket. And it's, and we have these conversations, but we don't have critical conversations of, things that we repeat. So, mm. sure, let's talk about a radical right and a radical left. And, uh, but it's not radical. Mm. To yep. want to, to go about in the world unimpeded by violence.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: and it really it really shows the how we've been socialized. It shows where the Overton window is. Mm. Uh, it shows where people or certain parties want the Overton window to be. I think you're absolutely right that we absorb all kinds of implicit assumptions and schemas and biases that we may not even be initially aware of until we interrogate or analyze them and say, huh, I was operating with this within this frame. Uh, I mean, I have this conversation a lot with people of there like, well, of course the blacks commit more of the crime. Uh, it is the logic. And you bring out the actual statistics and how their assumption, their knee-jerk visceral assumption is not actually based on the uh, data, especially in the present day. It's based on this sort of stereotype that they've absorbed and... Uh, the media and, to an extent, propaganda and uh, various images that they may not even be aware that they've absorbed and and they've interpreted in a certain way. There's also this sort of toxic centrism where people uh, are nervous about committing to a side. It's almost like a South Parkian attitude of Mm. people who care are crazy losers. I don't want to be a crazy loser, so I commit to the absolute center uh, because that's where the reasonable people are and I'm cool and detached and cynical. Problematically though, centrists uh, tend to side with the right because just of the inclination towards the status quo. So if one side is pushing for uh, change and agitation and transition and difference and doing something new. And the other side is saying, uh, no, I think we should maintain things as they are. Centrists have this so- sort of psychological inclination to say, well, these people are going wild with the changes and these people just wanna maintain course and that seems more prudent and, and normal and sane to me. So I'm going to orient in that dis- in that direction. And then as the Overton window drifts in a given direction, the centrist drifts with it, not even realizing that they're not technically maintaining the center that uh, they thought they were. Their their center is uh, shifting with the window, which is mm-hmm. often. Uh, I would in at least in my experience, it often shifts to the right, and the centrists go with it without realizing they're drifting. If yeah. that makes sense.
0: Yeah. No, it absolutely does, and that I think that's the reality that I've witnessed as well in my lifetime watching. Um, social and political uh, machinations. It, it's all been shifting to the right. Uh, for worse, traditionally. But um, before we get into um, any other specifics here, I think you both brought up some really, really important points. The idea, especially Simony, the way that you started off, of saying that we should not be viewing the idea that individuals should have th- the the right to be a free individual as a radical idea like that should not that 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 should be a, that should be the center line that should not be the extreme radical line but it is in a lot of the world which is an insane thing when you sort of take a step back and really look at what are the what are the qualities what are the traditions that are trying to be preserved by this idea of determining them, as labeling them as radicals. So let me get through some definitions, and I want to bounce some ideas about what the left is seen as being radical for, and what the right is being seen as radical for. And I think, honestly, if we honestly look at the reality between the two, there should be no discussion about what's radical and what's not. Um, So the definition of radicalism uh, that I found online is the action or processes of causing someone to adopt radical positions on political or social issues. Very vague, very basic. Extremism is, I'm gonna shorten the definition shown here, is a concept used to describe religious, social, or political belief systems that exist substantially outside of belief systems, more broadly accepted in society. And I think that is really the point that we have to focus on when having this type of a conversation. What is commonly accepted in the society that we're talking about and anything outside of that is going to be seen as extreme or radical. And that's when that that overturn, am I saying that right? That um, overturn window that you were speaking of Troj, is completely skewed, right? Because some of the ideas that are seen and have historically been seen as radical on the left, by the right, have been individual rights, universal human rights, uh, going all the way back to heliocentricism, Uh, democracy, atheism, opposition to slavery, the idea of evolution, racial equality, equal rights for women, LGBTQ rights, gay marriage, trans rights, disability rights, Satanism. I mean, the idea of healthcare for all. These are very... (laughs) These have historically been seen as radical ideas, and these are the ideas that are currently being protested That the media, the liberal media as it's being termed, is framing as the radical left. Whereas on the other side, we're seeing straight up murder, we're seeing character assassination, we're seeing straight up threats of rape and violence, we're seeing subjugation. So when the left looks like the left looks at the right, that is what's radical but that is within that window of commonly held beliefs in a large portion of the society and whether or not that's even a real statement is under question because the right is really, really loud, but they're not popular in numbers. The problem Mm. is the reality is most people don't get involved. Most people don't vote. And so you're only seeing the activist sides of these issues and using that extreme view as consensus of normality.
2: And there are pundits who have a very vested interest in uh, spotlighting every example of a loony or an extremist or a fringe person or Uncle Larry that nobody uh, in the movement actually likes and saying, this is uh, a prototypical example of this movement, and so this is why you need to double down and defend America against these people. Uh, uh, And if you're in certain circles, it can seem sort of alien because you go, wait a minute, uh, I know exactly the person that they're citing, and uh, we don't like that guy either, and none of us agree with him. But there you are. It's to uh, perpetuate that... uh, I mean, it's basically to fuel the cycle of radicalization and pull people further in a given direction in opposition of this uh, imagined enemy that wants to take everything from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to add
1: um, a couple nuances to what you said, um, Adam. Yeah. So for one, um, you know, I would, I would... I would challenge the idea, or at least, or at least suggest that we rethink the framing of something that's sort of a, a commonly held um, belief. You know, like I, I'm less concerned, and, and even the tr- uh, even in the phrases of like what's a negative or positive view, and and step back and think more about in terms of of harm. Um, so, if uh, you know, uh, someone gets into extremist views of their uh, particular conspiracy theory you know big feet you know aliens whatever it's not necessarily harmful uh but if they begin to uh you know think about uh, things like pizzagate or um notions of of uh you know anti uh, roaming the streets and pulling white women out of suburban houses uh for rape and violence um because the uh, trump even hinted at that in several of his lectures, like he brings these phrases that correspond directly to um, the rhetoric and propaganda of of black men as sexual predators as a direct threat to white women. And therefore, white men had to enact violence against black men, you know, as protectors of their virtuous, um, virginal type of white women. So there's an entire rhetoric for that kind of thing. Rape and violence isn't new. Um, That stuff was considered quite mainstream, as you say. So I just I just want to uh if if currently the far right um in the 80s um we we considered popularly as dead. oh that's you know that's Nazism that's been dead for a long time. Every now and then in my circles, you know, like a a neo Nazi punk you know aesthetic might pop up, but and every now and then you I did know that there was an actual uh you know neo Nazi violence. It seemed to be very minor and quite fringe but nowadays all these fringe movements have moved to the center like these are not fringe movements anymore if the 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 uh, president talks about them if there is uh you know a lot of people willing to mobilize and enact um violence against people so um if If our elected representatives retweet them yeah then that's not fringe anymore like we might look at it and go like that's fucking nuts. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> this gate bullshit, this in on um, conspiracy theories. But it, it works a particular advantage to get people to uh, exactly feel fear, and then even I find the biggest threat right now, uh, even though it, the far right is enacting violence, and um, may I just preempt uh, my condolences for the fall of your empire? And uh, <laughs> that's perhaps <laughs> me uh, this way, um, uh, that that even if that even if there's the a far right that happens right now, I find that the the more difficult conversation to have is with white liberals who view Biden as um, going to fix it all. Like they feel so upset, like their worldview has been challenged. Uh, the notion of America being the land of the free is not. Uh, true for everyone because there have been entire communities that not only have been disenfranchised but like actively um, <laughs> been enacted violence against, and that they're becoming aware of it and it's changing their view of America and and thus changing their view of self and they they keep saying things like the race card like stop playing the race card or and dismissing that without saying well all imperial nations, Canada included, we'd like to think we're smug and nice, but you know we had slavery and um, we still sterilize indigenous women without their knowledge. Like they go into the hospital Holy for one operation shit. and then, yeah, it's not, you know, Canada has directly engaged in uh, practices and policies that kill indigenous people. And mm. it's it's part of our foundation of our nation. Uh, uh, we wrote, got that too, so. Um, yeah, exactly. Like the you guys Congress just do it super document. duper politely. <laughs> we do, we do, and, and the international community us that way. So, so we are also engaging our own propaganda that even when you talk to Canadians and you say, and most of us are very liberal, even our most conservative politicians like are are like way left to your, You know, Trudeau. Oh, Trudeau is is far more conservative than our conservatives. So so Hillary Clinton, if we're going to talk about politics and race, it's not just about left and right because racism, systemic racism, is also viewed as a political pawn. Yep. When she was trying to get white voters, yep. Democrats, she was tough on crime, which Super is previous. coded language, coded racist language to um, <laughs> charge and um, put more black men in jail. So that, so so when this type of language is happening, it's, it's to their political advantage. So mm. I I want to caution that it's not just left and right. I certainly think that right now, Trump is a much larger threat, you know, like in the, in the broader scope, a, a direct threat, but it's not as if anyone, any politician that considered themselves liberal or Democrat um, didn't also use strategically, um, you know, policies and language and coded ways to inform your liberal middle-class person uh, that their status quo would be maintained. Don't, mm-hmm. don't worry. We, we know that you're not racist, they like to tell themselves, um, but we will keep the worst of them out of your communities, out of your workforces, not marrying your daughters. And we all
0: know who them this
1: is. Way. Yes, they do know who them is. And that's and that's the thing, because it's not said out loud and because they don't say the N-word and they would be horrified at the notion of a Ku Klux Klan. And that's where I find right now is very difficult um, to convey to the the liberals But no, no, no. If you have a lot of power right now, and if you think just a little vote for Biden is going to fix everything, wait till you see what the radical left does then. Like, I hope that they... Burn down the institution, like I'm
2: done. <laughs> well, and, and then I, I, at the same time, I'm also frustrated with leftist friends who are opting out of the election or voting third party because their stance is Biden and Trump are identical or practically identical, uh, which I think is uh, a gross oversimplification, and uh, Trump objectively does a lot more open harm with open glee. Uh, and waves to people that, uh, I mean, extremists, uh uh, does hail fellow where, well met to fascism uh, in a lot of ways that Biden does not. So uh, Biden's going to tow the status quo for good and for ill, but Biden isn't a psychopath and can be held accountable to external standards and uh, a sense of decorum. So at least there's some some reins there, even though it's imperfect. Mm-hmm. So we're trying... It's all We're always trying to grapple with, I mean, what do we do with the system we have? Uh, what do we do with what's been presented with us? Uh, so uh, there are problems with reformism of let's just reform things into uh, utopia gradually, uh, And then there's the the pitfalls of revolutionary thinking of, well, we'll have a glorious revolution and that will fix it. And your, your revolution may or may not be glorious and it may not go as you expect. There's been a lot of, uh historical revolutions uh that were maybe glorious for about 15 minutes and then uh, a megalomaniac filled the power vacuum uh and you got a new flavor of authoritarianism Mm. so uh strawberry you've got to be careful with that so there's uh pitfalls on either side and it's really sort of difficult to navigate okay how do you when you have a a two-party system uh how do you do the least amount of harm and the most amount of good?
1: And it's something yeah. I, I certainly wrestle with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to make a quick note about revolution. I mean, again, the people that are most harmed are the people already on the margins. Yep. You know, it's not the people who are already protected that get harmed the most when there is a violent revolution. And so for that reason alone, I, I hope it doesn't come to that in the United States. Though, you know, every, every political scientist I know uh, personally, and uh, the ones whose books I've read and then I follow their uh, Twitter are like, yeah, he's he's following the playbook, you know. Uh, from and I, what I didn't realize um, until relatively recently was that um, Nazi Germany took its cues from America in terms of its genocidal, you know, practices. And um, you know, it doesn't surprise me once I heard it, but it wasn't something that I, I knew of. So, so even if they say. Amer- you know, Trump right now is currently following the playbook of, of exactly what the Nazis did in Germany. Uh, and he is in terms of propaganda, in terms of uh, the legal constructs that he implements if he designates certain cities as uh, Antifa. The
0: <laughs> anarchist states. states.
1: The, the, the Anarch- ultra nationalism,
2: the demonization yeah. of enemies, your enemies are simultaneously strong and weak. I mean, he's uh, basically hitting a uh, Umberto's echoes check, uh, checklist,
1: uh, like a bouse. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's so so when I when I look at that kind of thing, and I I, I tend to think, well, it, it, I don't have any necessarily hope that Biden himself it can be swayed personally, but if if there is you know any notion of uh, possibly pushing the legal categories further to then. Then stop some of the, the worst practices that have been happening and are currently happening. Um, you know, like close the concentration camps. Uh, you know, for one, let's 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 start there. But let's you know, uh, <laughs> let's and um, to have that conversation. You know, begin. You, you cannot have that conversation uh, with Trump uh, because I I my my worst fear is that regardless of the election, you know, Trump doesn't accept the results. It doesn't really matter. But then in communities, openly, you know, the police invade Black communities and cause more deaths and violence directly without anybody being able to stop them. And, I, and like yep. even now, they're not being stopped. And this, I think, is why when people call for revolution, I say, be fucking careful, because unless you're prepared to go on the front lines and guard the Black community that's closest to you and the people you know, like with your guns and stand in the perimeter there and put your life on the line. Be careful how you call for revolution. You know, maybe... Yeah, uh, uh,
2: don't 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 be be a hetero cis white guy calling for revolution on your Twitter when you would be the least impacted by that (laughs) wave. All
0: right, let me me pull this back just a little bit. Um, I want to take it away from uh, the coming election for a minute and try to talk a little bit about what does it mean to become radicalized right because we've talked about a lot of ideas that um are seen as radical depending on where you're standing on any given issue in the individual moment that you're standing but the truth is this isn't like a a night and day thing i mean we we spoke briefly about you know americans uh history of uh racism and genocide but america as as like I would argue with every single entity out there, because it's all comprised of humans, has a rich history. And you can argue mm. the fact that America was born and bred in racism of one form or another. If it wasn't the Italians, yep. it was the Irish, or it was the Germans, or it was the, uh, any Asian country, because we've never been able to discern a difference between that entire region of the earth. Um, it's always been embedded in, in the american culture to demonize one group and so it makes perfect sense that hitler germany would look to the west and say it's working pretty well over there let's see if we can uh, add a little bit of sauerkraut on top it, it makes perfect sense like come on why And it's,
2: i think it's a, ba- a base human instinct of we have this instinct towards recognizing members of the in group and the tribalism, out group yeah. uh tribalism uh and if that instinct falls on a spectrum, uh, so uh, in some people it's weaker and in some it's kitty cat, stronger, yeah. meow, meow. Uh, so I think to get into your question, uh, I think there are some people who are, uh, just based on the research that I've looked at uh, I think one of the the shining stars is Bob Altermeyer, who studied authoritarianism. Uh, there appears to be just people who have, I guess what we could call authoritarian personalities. of uh, they have a certain cluster of traits and tendencies and innate ways of reacting to the world that predispose them to authoritarianism and extremism in one form or another. And then I think there are uh, regular folks who, when triggered in certain ways, can become extremist or you can ignite extremist tendencies in them. And that's often rooted in fear. It's rooted in, I think, in alienation. Uh, and I think it's, it can be rooted in sort of ego threat or that your self concept or, and, or your core beliefs have been challenged. And that sort of thing can push people to an extreme that maybe they, they even didn't believe that they were capable of being pushed to before.
0: So does, um, Um, let me ask you, does, does, turning to radicalism or extremism in the individual, does it have to become physically active in order to be abjectly negative? Because you had already mentioned, you know, there's some people that believe aliens, you know, help build our species, or, you know, these are sort of extreme or radical ideas, but there's not any harm being done. So so does it have to turn to harm in order to be, Justifiably radicalized or extreme?
1: Well, I mean, even even then, I think there's different. I think there's different categories. I, I would want to, uh, or if we're going to do, you know, a categorization, but I think there's a context for if we're going to talk about violence, like enacting violence. Then let me give you an example from my field and the way sometimes we talk about violence in religion. So uh, if we talk about Jonestown, hmm. and one of the things when I've taught. Um, about and I've taught students about Jonestown is I first tell them okay you know uh, Jim Jones absolutely bad guy but if the only thing you take away from this course is he's a sort of sociopath and all his you know uh, constituents were you know gullible to him you're you're missing how these people began to very much uh, you know like or love him and and follow him and one of the things that he did was he was a a radical leftist, um, and most of his constituents were Black Americans. And his early church uh, was about, you know, what American white American society, you know, is, is never going to be fair and never going to be just. And so, most of the people that he drew into his church were for these um, was based on these grounds. So, on the surface, sounds, um, you know, uh, radical in the sense of uh, here's a Christian church, you know, openly advocating for uh, civil rights, and uh, which was relatively rare for a white preacher to do. Now, now, ultimately he does. Like when he, when he gets, when he's isolated and they're in the jungle and their compound, you know, people were shot when they tried to run away, and he wants to give everyone um, the, you know, uh, poison-laced uh, flavor aid. Mm-hmm. But still, and like, and that's his extreme. So here's a ex- notion of extreme violence. But what I want my students to understand is. Right, but what ideas would make you follow him? You know, if if you know he talked about doing that kind of thing, he, he had done practice runs before while they were still in America. I mean, I'd like to think that even if I went to a church and that these are ideas that I believed in, that the first time that he does a practice run and, and to see who is loyal, I'd be like, I'm out. Thanks. It's good. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. But, but then when people stay and sometimes it just recommits them to the movement. Mm-hmm. So... It's never just one thing. It's always a slow uh, type of progression. And, you know, some people do walk away. My, um, just to give you a little anecdote, my mother was pretty uh, radical. She grew up in Chicago. She's American and working class. And uh, when she went to university, she, um, you know, got involved with the Black Panther chapter there and lots of radical leftists. And she was part of this group that were talking about, you know, protests. and, And she was involved in those things. Uh, but at some point she's in this group uh mick wasn't black panther it was just a i forget the name she told me once um but then they started talking they bouncing around the idea of bombing a bank because this represented capitalism and it represented the state yeah. and and
0: she uh, <laughs> said nope <laughs> and, and <laughs> that's that. my line
1: and uh, yeah she was like uh-uh nope this is in, you know she recognized in herself this is, this is not where I want to be. This is not the risks I want to take. This is not the type of protest I want to engage in. Uh, and and that group was later raided by the FBI, so she was, um, you know, lucky for that. Yeah. But uh, I point that out just to say, it's, it's, it's not as if along the way, when people are exposed to more extremist ideas, that they come up to you right away and they say, hey, do you think it's a good idea? to? Th- hey, I want you to throw this Molotov cocktail into this building, like, that never happened. They, right. they have to build it up slowly to convince you that your life is a threat. Mm-hmm. You know, Kittenhouse, this white terrorist that just, you know, shot people, um, uh, you know, absolutely is convinced that the black people in America are going to uh, take power and enact the same violence on white people that the state has enacted on them. And he's yep. so convinced of this and he feels that he's on the side of God and that he's, well, I don't know if he's Christian, but it wouldn't surprise me. But the notion that it's, it's embedded no matter what, like that there's uh, the, that the righteous America, that he is the defender of it and that it's good versus evil right here. So yep. I think that it's not as if, it's not as if when someone enacts that kind of violence, um, it happens in a vacuum. There are other larger factions at, at work of, of when someone thinks violence is necessary, you know, like in the in some of the violent revolutions, um, it's because the ruling powers so took advantage of the people without power that eventually the only recourse was violence. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I'm not saying that it's justified. I'm just saying if your sense of if your own if the only way you can achieve justice is via those means, then I'm not surprised when that happens.
0: Yeah. Let let me bring up uh, some of these uh, notes that Troj was so brilliant in uh, putting down here for us. Um, Some of the ideas about, uh, and this is uh, from economist Ronald Winthrop, Uh, he noted different extreme movements often share common sets of characteristics, right? So both are against uh, compromise with the other side. Um, They're entirely sure of their position, They advocate and sometimes use violence to achieve their ends. They're traditionally nationalistic. They're intolerant of dissent within their group and they demonize the other side. I think we can all in small ways see that our own internal decisions may correlate with some of these. But most well, of and, us are able to discern the difference, right? Uh, what's that
2: and there was a researcher for uh, who looked at fringe movements named Laird Wilcox, and he had 21 traits of extremism, which were character assassination, name calling and labeling, irresponsible sweeping generalizations, in a, inadequate proof for assertions, advocacy of double standards, tendency to view their opponents and critics as essentially evil, a manichaean worldview, so things are all good or all bad, and we're in a war between good and evil, advocacy of some degree of censorship or repression of their opponents or critics, tend to identify themselves in terms of who their enemies are, who they hate and who hates them, tendency towards argument by intimidation, use of slogans, buzzwords, and thought-stopping cliches, Morals or other superiority, other or ov- oh, speak English hmm. over others. Uh, doomsday thinking: belief that it's okay to do bad things in the service of a good cause. Emphasis on emotional responses and correspondingly less importance attached to reasoning and logical analysis. Hypersensitivity hypersensif- and vigilance use of supernatural rationale for beliefs and actions, problems tolerating ambiguity and uncertainty, inclination towards groupthink, tendency to personalize hostility, and extremists often feel that the system is no good unless they win and I've even dabbled in those in certain moments, especially in uh, moments of extreme fear or anger, whether for myself or for others. So I don't think we're necessarily immune to these visceral reactions or behaviors. Yeah.
1: I I would like to take, just allow me a few minutes to think about the the broader view of, of what's happening right now. So if the, let's say over the past, I don't know, 50 years or so um, since, uh, let's say since the 1960s of, you know, uh, women's rights movements and feminism and civil rights um, and passing the Voting Rights Act in the United States, but even globally, with these shifts have sort of happened of when women got the right to vote and when um, and, and emancipation, um, is that initially then, if if, if women and black people are granted, at least on the surface, free citizenship, equal citizenship, that doesn't mean that that happens. And so then uh, slowly they try to make uh, in ways into, uh, you know, uh, the workforce and education and and keep hitting up against these walls where the white establishment keeps responding with, well, we we allowed one of you in, like, you know, like you should be happy with the, with the, with the kernels and the pennies that we've given you, and that, uh, and that the force to, let's just say, in higher education, because I understand that industry the best, uh, is is that slowly what's been happening is that when Black people and Indigenous scholars and women scholars and queer scholars infiltrate the higher education system, is that then they challenge the system with, from within, and that the stakeholders of that system, the the people that most benefit from the status quo then suppress those types of studies and suppress those types of scholars and don't fund them and try to silence them in many ways or punish them. And and that the backlash we're seeing right now is the confluence of, of part of that, the old establishment seeing a new crop of transfer of power of people demanding power because they've been denied it and taking away their own power. And also not just taking away power. I mean, like a, having conversations with each other. Like, sit down, mediocre white man. Your opinion is irrelevant. <laughs> like, let the grown-ups are talking. And that's part of somehow this this incel demanding, dragging a conversation down with derailing tactics, uh, playing devil's advocate in ways that never advance the conversation. DEBATE it's, ME! It is designed, that those types of talking points are deliberately designed so that you never advance the conversation beyond squibbling over semantics so that the people who would like to advance never get to. So if we're talking about pandering, like we we do far more pandering to the average white male audience than we ever do to anyone else that keep demanding that, that they remain the center of attention in all things, in all industries, broadly speaking. And, it's and right then now, when they
2: get pushed back, they, they feel that they've been horribly canceled yeah. and oppressed. So not, not being at the head of the buffet line is yeah. oppression, and not That's being at right. the center of the table is marginalization, when in fact, uh, they're just sharing equal ground and being treated essentially the same as everyone else. Uh, But because that's a new unique experience for them, uh, it feels like oppression and victimization. Mm. And that also triggers for me an interesting thought of uh, there's kind of a now sexy cachet in being canceled. So people will wear their cancellation badges or They've their badges. I'm part of the intellectual dark web badge. And what's fascinating about the IDW people is they say, I'm expressing. Exciting new forbidden ideas. And it's like, oh, yes, exciting new forbidden ideas from the 18th century. What <laughs> if people of color were more dumber than whites? Oh, this is a. <laughs> What if queer people were degenerate and invalid and their identities were fake? Uh, it's like, oh boy, I've never heard that one before, except for all the years growing up until maybe the earliest 2000s, maybe late 90s. Uh, so it's fascinating how, speaking of the Overton window, uh, what, what's old, what's new is old again, what's old is new again. There we go. Uh, of presenting uh, actually antiquated, uh, rejected uh, ideas as fresh, new, and forbidden, often to reel in fresh blood and uh, basically amp up the the clicks, the likes, and the shares and your own social capital. Because yeah. I've been canceled for being too uh, too much of an intellectual renegade.
0: <laughs> I want to I want to talk about some ways. Pathways that uh, people can find themselves radicalized. Um, I think we've done a pretty fair job of explaining uh, the realities of, of radical and extreme ideas in the society that, that we can recognize from where we are looking back. But to Simony's point, this is never a fast process it's carefully laid foundations that allow these ideas to grow and cement hold and then when you're throwing that Molotov clock tell, you're not thinking whoa should I be doing this you're thinking I have to be doing that.
2: I absolutely have to I've yeah. been pushed to this point
0: so there there are a lot of different ideas of, of radicalization um, and I think especially from America's standpoint and this is one that really actually personally infuriates me a lot because I'm, I'm so over fucking 9-11, but it's Islamophobia. It's it's Islam. It's mm-hmm. this idea that this entire group, this entire religious people is nothing but radicals. Um, yep. Now, there is some information here. It was reported that uh, Rufia Hayat of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association warned that jailed extremists attempt to recruit violent criminals into radical groups so that they carry out attacks. On the public once they're released. Uh, There have been concerns that converts to Islam are actually more susceptible to violence, violent radicalization, than individuals born into the faith. And jihadis have tried and tested models of contact with different vulnerable and extremist individuals through online messaging services or social media platforms, and then rapidly manipulate them towards participating in violent action. And I think what's really important to focus here is that there are small groups that fall within the larger group that are radicalizing outsiders to do the yep. work for them, not they're <laughs> the ones actually doing it themselves in some cases. And I think that's very interesting because ultimately from the outside looking in, all we're doing is demonizing and blaming an entire uh, structured group of religious individuals. But the truth is, is, it's all a lie created by a very small minority of that group. Um, some others, and
2: we're not—we're not even subjecting Islam to the same. We're—we're uh, we're scrutinizing it differently and more harshly than we'd scrutinize Christianity, uh, which also has extremist elements, uh, which operate in often a very similar fashion, but we treat them differently.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because this is legitimately my area of expertise. <laughs> uh, it, it is. I—I I, I admit to being a slightly slightly put aside by even characterizing what, you know, anything that's considered good or bad religion. To me, um, these broad movements of, you know, it's so so embedded in in Christianity and Islam are so uh, multiple people uh, enacted by, or multiple people subject to all kinds of different economic and political forces all around the world. And when people behave in violent ways that we cannot really talk about violent Islam or violent Christianity as separate categories than the politics, the geopolitics going on. Like even, right. you know, the Western colonizers have been invading uh, uh, Muslim countries uh, for, for a long time and quite literally destabilizing those areas in order for economic gain. And, you know, I, I, I really despise the accusation that if you explain something in context that you're somehow, trying to justify any type of you know suicide bombing is like it, it, to me that's an anti-intellectual stance in the first place you want to understand something you can't just say this is islam doing this or this is christianity doing this in the crusades you really mm. have to go broadly and say well american evangelical christianity right now is heavily influenced by the violence of the american state immediately and and has been embedded the notion of white supremacist Christianity. So it's it's embedded in the ethos of the country. And so the idea then that you wouldn't also be as critical of, of other religions or as complex or as nuanced um, uh, is also then a problem for me because I know it's my training, but even when we discuss them, uh, they're abstracted for me. I don't mean that the yep. violence acted on individual persons or people who experienced more, um, you know, as you have, Adam. I don't mean to devalue the... The, that visceral, you know, uh, experience uh, of, of that. But I mean that broadly. We should never isolating those things is also a problem. Mm-hmm. Or calling this not real, this or not real that is irrelevant because there's always so many other factors going on. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be. A, they, could, you know, uh, Afghanistan could have been an atheist nation, uh, but if the U.S. had been, <laughs> and then Russia, you know, had been uh, for decades. Um, invading and um, destabilizing their country, um, I can see how that could then cause a whole bunch of different violent reactions in opposition to it. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, right. And, and I think you're exactly right that explaining it is not justifying it, it's just explaining and contextualizing it. So uh, that also, a lot of these people could be, and movements could be uh, better explained and contextualized. For example, uh, incels. Uh, often lonely uh, alienated guys uh, who have had difficulty forging meaningful connections with other people and getting dates for any number of reasons. And uh, some of those are uh, outside of their control. Some of those are within their control. Uh, Some of those are tragic. Uh, Some of those uh, are, that's on you bro. But once you look at it from their perspective of these are are people who've been struggling with that sense of alienation and are trying to figure out what to do with it. Uh, A lot of ideological extremists are people who feel like outsiders in some capacity or another. They feel alienated or they experience some kind of... uh, existential threat or turning point that renders them more susceptible to that extremist movement. Uh, Same with QAnon of, uh, uh, I read an article that, on Facebook, someone examined QAnon and they said, a lot of these Facebook groups appear to be comprised of sad, lonely, elderly people uh, who have gathered around QAnon as a way of connecting and alleviating their loneliness. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people join uh, uh, either left-wing or right-wing movements because those movements articulate what they've been feeling and experiencing in terms of their economic or social or interpersonal struggles, and they give voice to them. So that isn't necessarily uh, good, bad, right, wrong. Uh, It just is what it is. And I think we do have to confront that. If we wanna unpack, okay, how do people get radicalized and then how can we possibly prevent that or de-radicalize people, so we have to at least understand how they got to how they got to be where they are right now. Uh, you got to know where you are to, to figure out where you
1: want to go next.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, and, I, and presented I think... with a convenient uh, sorry, just quickly, right. there uh, in terms of incels, if they're that they're presented with a convenient scapegoat like feminists, I mean, which yep. is a common um, everywhere. The the few. <laughs> the few times I ventured into those virtual spaces, had my fill and got out, you know, just, uh, that uh, feminism is really then targeted and feminism be, becomes something I've never seen it to be, <laughs> but, but because they're not actually reading, fem- there's not a one fucking incel that has ever picked up a feminist author, but they certainly you know. imagine feminism to be something it's not, but it is they're absolutely a threat and, and uh, my sentiment has always been like well they're, they're tapping into different alienation uh, not quite knowing what how to be men in this new world what masculinity means uh, as we do have shifting notions of gender and they feel left out of that uh, discourse and then combined with being you know lonely and, and not having sex i mean uh, i i have limited sympathy even if i understand the context because if you're going to talk about loneliness and sexlessness like let me introduce you to my phd program and yep i'm not joining yeah. yeah. in how,
2: how how how's them apples for involuntary celibacy well yeah. And, yeah, you're no right. uh, <laughs> and i think you can understand people sympathize with them and work with them uh as long as there's a person in in there who can be worked with right. uh, i think that's important uh you don't have to uh, condone or soft pedal or excuse uh, their behavior or their attitudes. Mm-hmm. So I think "Oh, poor, ba- oh, poor, sweet baby" uh, is a mistake. But at least saying "Hey, I hear that you're alienated" uh, might be useful. And I mean, y- you reminded me of uh, a saying. I don't remember where it came from. Of anti-Semitism is socialism for fools. Uh, uh, Wait, what? I don't recall. Rich, uh, of Basically, you get people who have these basic socioeconomic and existential concerns, uh, and uh, the dum-dums go for anti-Semitism because uh, they don't actually pick up Marx and Engels and say, oh, I'm alienated from my work for very good reasons. Uh, they instead uh, pick up the... Uh, Uh, right-wing pamphlet that says, the reason you feel alienated from your work and relationships is the globalists. Eyebrows, eyebrows, eyebrows. I love the
0: globalists. (laughs) It's just this catch-all meaningless fucking phrase. The globalists.
2: Which means the Jews. See, also the cultural Bolsheviks and the cultural Marxists. And also the uh, double or the triple parentheses. Mm -hmm. Um, Or just george soros if you're nasty
0: right right we're we're dangerously close to our hour (laughs) limit are you guys okay hanging out for a little bit more
2: oh absolutely okay
0: um for everyone here because i i see it every once in a while in chat um all of our notes are going to be available on my website with links to the source materials Um, I want to make sure that we're not just having a conversation, but that if you disagree with a point that is made or an assertion, then you can look it up yourselves. And I would hope that if you do disagree, that you would then do the research. And I'm making that easy for you. Actually, Troj is making it easy for you because you provided the majority of all these notes. But um, there are going to be posted. So please... If you're going to uh, disagree or argue, make sure you have an educated argument or disagreement and not just an opinion based in personal anecdote. Um, I I do want to talk a little bit about pathways to um, radicalization through the right wing. We're going to get to some of the left wing as well, but radical right wing terrorism is motivated by a variety of different right-wing, far-right ideologies, most prominently neo-fascism, neo-nazism, white nationalism, and to a lesser extent, uh, patriotic, sovereign, citizen beliefs, and anti-abortion sentiment. Um, And as with almost all radicalization, we've already mentioned traits of extremism, it's usually those who feel like they are losing a sense of self, either nationally or individually. They don't have economic opportunities that they feel like are give, should be given to them or that they have access to, they just feel underrepresented or that their way of life is going the way of the dodo. And so they, they can easily be picked up by white nationalist groups and alt-right groups. Um, yep. There's a pretty big difference when you wanna sort of A and B compare and contrast. with um, virtually any other, uh, you know, scale of the spectrum, but, you know, specifically left-wing groups, right? Because one is everything is, my life is changing. Everything's been taken away from me. And the other is I've never had anything and I want to have something. I just want to be at the Mm -hmm. table. So, you, you know, to going to the very beginning of our conversation, where you can't really say that a left-wing radical is a radical because they're just saying we want to be at the table and the right-wing is saying, whoa, 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 we can't have another person at the table or else I am marginalized. It's not apples to apples. The arguments are not even and equal. And so you cannot ever look at the scale and look at any given protest that's happening right now in over, the world actively and say that the left wing is somehow more empowered, more um, dangerous than any of the right wing uh, actors on, uh, you know, acting directly in opposition to them. It's literally I want a seat at the table and I don't want you to have a seat at the table. Those are the differences.
1: Dangerous. So, it, so, so that is a dangerous claim though. In, in the sense of if if we make the claim that, uh, I mean, saying left and right is a little problematic, but let me just, I'll just, I'll give that one to you, all. But um, the idea that even when you see um, a lot, uh, when you do see violence, like technically from communism or socialism, uh, there is, I don't want to diminish that communism has, you know, also killed at least 100 million people worldwide. Like, let's not be, let's not, let's not be foolish in, in the claims that we make that one is not violent. But I was really
0: contextualizing in what's happening right now, not, but I do take your point.
1: Yeah. So, so, but even in South America, where um, there is a popular um, uh, discourse uh, from the right wing forces and pundits that talk about the evils of leftism and Marxism and socialism from uh, in South American countries, and we have seen a lot of violence, but what they never talk about is how the American CIA has um, infiltrated them and uh, destabilized. Latin America, you know, for decades. So it's not as if, you know, America doesn't have its own, um, interest in, in, in propping up certain types of dictators, in maintaining instability, because when a, when a nation is stable, it has more bargaining power. And that is not, that is dangerous to the empire, to the American Mm -hmm. empire. And, and again, I say that like Canada has this interesting kind of position where Internationally, we're viewed as nice and leftist, and we are quite pretty liberal and and half socialist capitalists. You know, not a, not as socialist as Scandinavian countries, but you know, we have universal healthcare and you know a few other things. So, subsidized uh, education. However, uh, we still benefit as an imperial nation of like the, the colonizers of the world. So there's and and the wealth that was accumulated as you know the imperial the, the empire. Uh, of Europe expands, and the wealth that was there we inherit and we benefit from. so so no person that lives in the so-called West, a dubious category in itself doesn't you know live in that particular context and doesn't hear that type of rhetoric where every time I've heard uh, right-wing pundits talk about the dangers of socialism and then also then herald Norway as some or Norwegian specifically because they're so white as <laughs> pure people, I'm like, the average Norwegian's lifestyle would drastically decrease if they lived in the U.S. I mean, the minimum wage is probably like 20, 25 bucks an hour, you know, so you work at your, as a retail that you would make, you know, 40 grand a year and uh, you would get vacations and benefits and, you know, two years, parental leave, whether you're the father or the mother or, you know, queer parents. I mean, the idea that somehow socialism is, is bad when you see it in other countries where it actually have they have an educated population. Um, they don't have the same types of uh, you know um, issues and problems. I'm not saying they're perfect because they're not. They're isolated. They're small societies. Uh, they're not subject to the same types of uh, of political machinations as other areas. Everything is unique, but still, when you hear socialism is bad, you're like, well, <laughs> what do you mean? You yeah. know, like, in who and what type of propaganda? are you listening to when you when you hear these kinds of words and what does it mean quite? And then if you, especially when you then ask people about particular issues. So if you're pro LGBTQ, they can do whatever they want. The contenting adults could fuck what they want, however they want, they don't care. Uh, if you talk about different types of freedoms, those tend to fall into socialist categories. And even if you ask someone if they're a socialist, they will be absolutely fucking not. But issue by issue, they're, they're often very much more left than they are right. yeah. In, in a lot of this in average conversation. So uh, I find that people don't even fully understand what the categories mean. And that's why I sometimes just use broadly liberal, because that could yep. be like the international type of notion of, well, individual freedoms, more or less, you know, not libertarianism, although, uh, you know, there's overlap everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, so politi- specific political parties and specific, specific political movements, in, in depending on the context, Uh, are also subject to varying broader powers, is my ultimate point. Mm -hmm. If South America was socialist and was left the fuck alone by the U.S., who knows, you know, what type of stability they would have. And my guess is a hell of a lot more than they have now.
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, when
2: you rig the game, this table doesn't stand up on its own. Yoink. Yeah. It's missing a leg.
0: I mean, we, we, we talked a little bit about this, you know, earlier in our conversation when we were addressing the reality that racism itself has always been a tried and true aspect of Americanism um, mm-hmm. and w- manipulating other countries is also a tried and true act of Americanism. We've done it from the very beginning at the very founding. We inspired France and used them in order to gain our independence. Then when they needed us, we turned our backs. This is a regular thing that America does is if we see in an individual particular moment that we can get some benefit from putting our fingers in someone else's cereal, we're gonna do it. And we will not pay any attention to the outcomes because we always assume that, well, we can deal with what happens later. Meanwhile, we have an entire world blowing up in our face because of that out, out, uh, the outcomes of our, our engagement. And so this, this is something that is just a natural, it's a natural part of Americanism. We, mm-hmm. we bloviate our qualities We lie to the rest of the world and ourselves. We murder and manipulate other peoples. And then we clutch our pearls when anyone seems to look at us in any way but heroic and honorable and good. Like Most Americans don't even accept the realities of American history itself or even know Mm -hmm. it. We just like to believe that we're all angels and and the world owes us a living because most of us are white, and most of us just have always been told that this is what America is and deserves.
2: I mean, uh, Trump's reaction to learning about critical race theory and that it's a part of some school curricula was to say we need a 1776 project where students need more patriotism. Uh, And it's just ironic that these are the people who decry political correctness and snowflakery and facts over feelings. Not so much Trump, but like pundits on the right. When, uh, if we don't paint the most beautiful picture of America, uh, children won't grow up to love it is political correctness and is snowflakery and is propaganda and is the kind of thing that we often at least used to despise in our enemies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would the, say that patriotism uh, needs to be run through uh, actually being a place where people enjoy living. Dare
1: I say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. I, I connected to the, the notion of patriotism, like this, as a Canadian and as a Canadian that who who was often considered American, It's because my parents are American, and so everyone I encountered in, in my childhood Rio sort Canadian. of talked to me about yeah, t- sort of somewhat viewed me as other uh, as American. Uh, and then the irony would be that I would visit my American family and they viewed me as Canadian. So it was like a, there's a sort of hybrid, uh, disjoint there. So I'm, I'm disconnected from the love of country. Um, although I like being Canadian, especially, especially if my option was American than Canadian, mm-hmm. I'll choose Canada <laughs> every time. Like, there's no question. Um, I just wanted to touch on critical race theory is that again, Uh, I I genuinely wish that uh, higher education was full of more more, uh, feminist critique and and queer theory and critical race theory, as much as the right wing imagine it to be. The reality is those are tiny studies and like the inroads that we've made to make, to re-examine history of the past um, are, (laughs) is very difficult. They're not, because the stakeholders are the ones that grant the money and, and, um, and hire the, hire the scholars that teach the students. So, and the, they've closed the doors slowly over the last 40 years. And, uh, higher ed was already burning for multiple reasons and COVID now has just destroyed it. Like quite literally, there are five jobs in my field and there will be, I don't know how many, how many thousands of graduates, or recent graduates are coming up graduates. Um, the fighting for those five jobs. And there'll be adjunct positions, contingent or whatever, but they have no power. So the notion that critical race theory is somehow infecting higher ed is BS because you you don't get taught it, and you should. it should be integral to most curriculum in terms of and, and, and how you, do you get it. examine something intersectionally.
2: And and if you get it, you get it at the high school, uh, at minimum, or often college level. So then there's this disingenuous talking point or they're insinuating that uh second graders uh are being uh are sitting down with like uh judith butler and hegel and marx and it's like no sweetie uh you're crazy uh it's yeah. like this is this is not happening at the, at the uh elementary school level uh chill yeah
0: well that, then i have the radical a, i have radicalization.
1: A, yeah I have difficulty with Judith Butler, and I am admittedly, obviously, brilliant. So if I <laughs> somehow have to struggle with her advanced theory, because she is a bona fide uh, academic with a sharp, critical mind, and the idea that somehow Butler is being taught broadly, uh, <laughs> and it's, that it's easy to absorb or understand, uh, is just poppycock, as mm. they say. Like, it is, it is advanced. Uh, Do they say poppycock? Her, her work is not
0: I do want to bring up an, an interesting t- t- part about the critical race theory is that I had never even heard of it contextualized as critical race theory until someone told me uh, notes trying to debunk it. So if it's the, this broadly taught thing, and I am a mid 40s man who has never even fucking heard of it. Where the fuck have right. I been? You know, I mean, it's right. you can't, you don't get both sides. It's either commonly known or it's not. And uh, it, clearly, it's not being commonly taught. Um, I, I want to round out our conversation here by uh, talking about a couple few closing points. And one of them is how do you know if you've been rattle- radicalized? Because if you're in it, you're not seeing it at all, right? So, I mean, do either of you have any opinions on this?
1: Oh, I've certainly been uh, radicalized into uh, wearing pajamas every day during COVID. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm into radical comfort. These are my uh, uh, my lovely palm um, uh, pajamas. I have matching, matching boxer shorts. And I call them my golden girls uh, PJs. And yeah, like uh, in terms of Radical. I, I uh, again, I think there's, I think there's different ways of nuance. Certainly a religion like Satanism is a radical idea. And even, even before Leve, the idea that certain political radicals uh, took up a, lang- a satanic rhetoric as a language of resistance to the status quo, to heteronormativity, to patriarchy, um, to different types of ruling powers like that that is part of the history of oh, you're going to call me satanic you're going to call me satan uh therefore i'm going to embody it and, and use these symbols against you so so radical uh can be the rebel hero can be the challenger of the status quo can be can be upheld as a as a virtue when we when we talk about just about as an adjective and i think if that's part of the initial draw the hook like you with these radical ideas and the people um demonize you for them you know, you're actually the hero, and whatever those ideas can be filled in in different ways. Um, you know, you're actually if if Kittenhouse thinks he's actually the hero, then you know what would it take for him to notice at what point? The entire the entire society reinforces that. Where would he be confronted if he didn't, uh, you know, take my class at university um, in his community, in his parents, in his, in television? If every if every hero he's ever seen has been a white man. Um, depicted in fiction, or like 90%, then he then assumes, embodies that, that he is the hero. He, he is convinced. It takes a lot more than just one-on-one conversation. Mm-hmm. It takes the images that you see, the representation. That's when, when people talk about representation matters. It's not just about, oh, I'd like to see myself reflected in popular culture. It's all about... Well, this popular, popular culture has been dominated by one perspective and it's teaching these people that they own the world, that they go about in the world unimpeded and then someone else, you know, they have no notion that there is uh, people who have been impeded. If, if any woman in public space um, receives rape, rape threats, like this is just common. If you're online and you're a woman, you're going to receive rape threats. I, I've received them um, or just people sending me messages about how they want to nut on my face or fuck me, or they masturbate about me. It happens all the time. I find it uh, gross, and it's an immediate block. But this is a thing that you experience as a woman online. I can't I can't experience my existence publicly online unimpeded. And uh, different intersections of people have different types of impediments, whereas the average kitten house doesn't, unless he's being held accountable for his own actions. So when we talk about at what point do people realize, I think right now, the far right has realized it and says, fuck you, it's powerful for us to be here. And part of their reaction is just dis- entirely disingenuous. We're going to pretend that your arguments don't make sense. You know, like the average, average person, I don't even know about the average person, but like, uh, I was never prone to saying the N-word, but like when I heard the argument that you shouldn't say it no matter what, you shouldn't rap along, you shouldn't say it as a joke. And I heard this argument, so I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. I get it. Sure. Okay. It, your call, it's your word. And it's the same with uh, maybe cunt. I don't know. I, cunt doesn't offend me, but I understand that if it's your particular word, uh, then you get to set the tone for who gets to use it when that word represents, you know, multi-generational and ongoing trauma. So if we're asking the question, when do people realize or if they realize, I, I think it's a complicated question because because the it's less, it's a there's a, notions of broader power at stake. The mm-hmm. average kitten house sees feels viscerally that as he grows up, maybe he cannot fail upwards into the presidency if these newer discourses that have stopped listening to to him, um, you know, are begin to become more mainstream. And I think that's, so it's broader than that. It's about uh, sticking your head in the sand and deciding, even if someone is right, ultimately, I know it means I have to cede power. And I think Mm -hmm. the act of ceding power is is like, oh, I have to give things up. I have to, I have to think about when I I haven't been impeded. Uh, You know, so I'll give you just one example. I grew up on welfare, quite low income. My parents were addicts. My mother suffered multiple traumas. And so I grew up in a very contentious well, contentiousness household that was unlike most of my uh, friends and, you know, then and now. But when I began to think about the notion of white privilege, uh, it took me a while to really pinpoint it. But then I began to think, well, it's what didn't happen. Um, My mother had a history of drug abuse, but, you know, she was never... She never had charges pressed against her, um, and she had violence enacted against her, but she wasn't criminalized. Like she wasn't arrested and put in jail. Uh, child protective services were never called on us, but were they called yeah. on um, my childhood indigenous friends? They were in and out of the system their whole lives, and it yep, it had yep. damaged them in multiple ways. So even in my low income uh, childhood, which poverty has its own trauma, absolutely. What yep. didn't happen, the state rarely intervened. I'm a high school dropout. I first started, stopped going to school at 12 years old and worked full time as a nanny. And no police came to my door or charged my mom with truancy because I didn't go to school. We got a few phone calls from the principal, <laughs> but there wasn't this state intervention in the same way that people of color that I knew would, that the police is immediately called. And that 14-year-old with skip school could be arrested and beaten by the cops. A and and there. that that's
0: right.
2: that's what I had to realize uh, uh, in my own sort of maybe political awakening or evolution, uh, first of all, I didn't I needed to first, well, first, I needed to actually meet people and see people and Uh, witness the fruits of systemic prejudice with mine own eyes, and when I finally was able to witness it in person, it was like, oh, this is a real phenomenon. Uh, This is not made up, and this is not strictly academic. Uh, I had to Uh, think about what, like you said, what I hadn't experienced or hadn't endured or hadn't endured in the same way and reflect on that. Uh, Because some people get stuck on well I've suffered too and I've had struggles and yes that is entirely true. Uh, It's what you haven't experienced uh, as a result of who you are. not the things that you have experienced as a result of who you are. I also was blind to stuff because uh, I didn't realize that the ways I was being treated due to being uh, disabled and female were actually not okay. And I uh, had sort of internalized and normalized them. So realizing, oh, other people do not experience these things that I have taken for granted. Ah, that's a little bit shitty, isn't it? Uh, so I had to sort of reflect in both directions.
0: So would you both say that it's it's integral to be able to have perspective and look outside of yourselves in order to realize if you've been radicalized or not?
2: Yes. Uh, can I have thoughts on Can I share thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, checking in with yourself. So I try to maintain a social circle that uh, has some people with diverse views, uh, largely hopefully uh, intelligent, articulate, nuanced views, not necessarily views I agree with, uh, but I've tried not to just curate a pure complete echo chamber for myself, because I'm confident in in my convictions, but I don't want to to just blow smoke up my own ass uh, like a Ouroboros human centipede. Uh, I want to be receptive to feedback and information and correction. Uh, I think checking in with yourself about how am I feeling generally? Am I more angry? Am I more afraid? Uh, am I happy? Am I unhappy? Why is that? How do? How does my mood compare to a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? Uh, what's the deal there? What does my social circle look like? Uh, Am I getting positive feedback from people, negative feedback from people? Has my social circle radically changed? Have I lost or abandoned hobbies or things I used to enjoy? Uh, How have I noticed my values or attitudes shift? Uh, How can I articulate those shifts? How do I feel about them? Uh, And I think also saying, what are my core ethics or uh, North stars, do I still maintain those? Why or why not? Uh, have those changed? Mm-hmm. Uh, what kinds of feedback do I receive from the people around me, positive, negative, or neutral? Uh, so I think mainly checking in with yourself and also being willing to uh, step outside of your own bubble or echo chamber occasionally to do sort of a check of uh, how am I relative to the rest of the reality? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think those are excellent points in terms of your, you know, reflexive type of uh, insight, which is the questions that you ask yourself. Um, uh, another, you know, method that I would say is broadly available is that you could read some fucking books. I mean, <laughs> like there are there are titles like How to Be Less Stupid About Race and uh, different ways to, um, you know, talk about these things with yourself. Now here's. Here's where I think that uh, white people, especially, and then men, when they talk about feminism issues is that they feel that they have a voice that the thoughts that they have, like people want to hear them. Um, And I think that that's the whole uh, premise of my uh, show. Damn it. (laughs) Right. So that I, 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 someone who's also like loved hip hop since the nineties. And now that I have this education and now that I can think about my own presence as a white woman, like in those spaces, like going to clubs and hearing hip hop music. And even if uh, in the Montreal scene in the nineties, um, it was quite racially mixed, you know, like where did we, how did we conceive of, of black people when we're consuming and like loving their their music, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like we're, we're consuming this culture and is there a, and what is that position when we do this? So retroactively, and even now currently, I think, well, if you are somehow you know, engaged in in Black culture or someone else's culture, you have to recognize you're a fucking guest. So as a guest, just as if you were in someone's home, your first job is to try to figure out the fucking rules, sit down and shut the fuck up. (laughs) No one cares about the white person's perspective on race. There are people and thinkers and activists and scholars who have spent time talking to each other about what it means, their perspective, what they need, what they want for uh, in the legislative, and the medical, and the academic uh, field. Like the body of knowledge is there everywhere. It's, it's easy to find. Uh, even in this massive mess of disinformation online, um, there are ways to teach people to, to search for it. Like it's one of the tools you learn in university. But the, I, I think publicly, apart from the individual reflexive things, that we have to begin talking publicly about what it means to search for the tools. It's not about just the information that you consume, it's about the method by which you find that information, uh, Mm. how to vet the information, how to consider different things. If you read a, a body of knowledge, and it doesn't mean that you have to agree, but you first have to understand internally what this person is saying. And one of my biggest gripes is anti-feminist rhetoric. And when they something comes out of their mouth that like feminists do X, Y, or Z, I immediately can tell that they've never read a feminist book in their fucking life. Because right. I want to say, which feminist said that? You tell me. Like some blog, some idiot somewhere made some claim. That's not, I'm not saying that's my not feminist. My buddy said
2: Anita Sarkeesian said it.
1: Yeah, uh, and when there's been 50 fucking years of you know and uh, texts everywhere, so and even ideas. And and it, here's the here's the most important thing. Um, it's not on us. It's not on women to educate men. It's not on black people to educate white people. It's not. It's on individuals to then seek out that information. And there may be people that could help you, maybe, but they don't owe you shit. Like, they don't owe you their time or their effort or their labor. And this is where I feel the entitlement of certain people. Like, I can't just go demanding to my black friends, hey, tell me about your oppression. Delve into your trauma in order to make me feel better about Mm. (laughs) my existence. Fuck that shit. You're not just a guest in someone else's culture. You're a guest in their trauma. Men don't get to ask women about rape, you know, unless they're sharing, you know, as people who have experienced sexual violence. And you have that condition of open and respect, sure. But you don't, if you're a guest in someone's trauma, your first job is to sit down and shut up. And you you don't say anything. And you let their voices talking to each other and you listen.
0: Right.
1: I think that's one of the main, the main things that you can do is that is to use your own silence as a means to understand the world outside of you. Mm -hmm. When
2: in someone's lair, uh, be polite or don't go there, der.
0: There you go. <laughs> we all should know that one. Um, I think that's as good of a place as any to close our conversation. Um, at no point was our intention ever to solve the world's problems and convert or educate the masses on how they're right or wrong. We're sharing our experience and education benefiting from others experience um and again no show notes are going to give you links in order to learn more i think a great way of, of closing this is what simony and troj was <coughs> just saying bless you is that oh i said bless you <gasps> um yeah <laughs> is that uh education educating yourself about others experience is integral now this is something that i've been harping on in the context of lesser magic, my entire communicating Satanism existence is in order to manipulate others, you must understand them, which means you have to be able to step outside of yourself. If you want to be a successful magician or warlock or witch or however you want to frame yourself, Satanist, you have to be able to understand people, but you cannot understand them if you do not at least read what they have to say hear what they have to say if you walk into a conversation with an opinion already formed you're continually just shutting down where they're coming from you're not actually hearing what they have to say or understanding their experience in whatever minute way we are capable of understanding it and that is the most important thing and so i challenge everyone that is either seeing themselves in a left or right position to research your opposing views. And it will not, in most cases, change your opinion, but at least you're gonna understand the educated or ignorant position that they're holding. And that's the only way that you're gonna be able to understand it. At no point in our lives, Should any Satanist be standing, and I'm going to throw out blanket terms here so you can fuck off if you don't like it. Should we be saying, we have to kill that person because they disagree with me? That is never a position to take. It should always be, if you really, really object to what they're saying, maybe toss them some links or some titles in order to allow them to educate themselves. But it should never be to destroy them, because the truth is the richness of the human experience is the diversity of human experience. And as Satanists, we should be able to accept and champion that idea, at least as I see it. All right, do either of you have any closing thoughts?
1: I mean, sure. I mean, I, I just wanted to add that, um, look, I might not punch a Nazi myself, but like when it happens, <laughs> I fucking smile. So, no, you know, I'm not for murder, as you say, but, like, fucking, fuck Nazis is all I got.
0: <laughs> Dangerous take. <laughs> fuck Nazis. <laughs> Boom. Um, chose- and,
1: I mean,
2: hell, if someone's hurting me or they're hurting someone I care about, uh, and it's uh, do or die, uh, I am going to do to protect yeah. me yeah. and the people I care about.
0: Completely understandable, yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose my context for the statement was very much in our online world of of, uh, paper fucking warriors or text warriors of uh, if you disagree with something, well, then it must be shut down. But, yeah, if anyone steps to any of my family or friends or something, then I'm I'm definitely going to step up for them. That's just how I roll. Um, Thank you both again so much i always love spending time with both of you and you know having these rather challenging conversations even if i find myself in a wrong position i truly enjoy being educated uh, by the likes of both of you so thank you so much
1: thank you adam thank uh, you adam
0: <laughs> thank you for the live audience i know we didn't get to all your questions it's really hard uh, Producing and participating in the show at the same time with two guests and then to draw on an audience uh, back and forth But I have been reading your comments and I do enjoy the back and forth that you guys have been having and that helps enrich this conversation as well So if you're watching this after the fact make sure that you're looking at the live chat During the conversation as well because it'll help contextualize it'll help give opposing ideas and thoughts and uh, reinforce some others. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Until next time, until we can speak of the devil again, Hail Satan.